0: Tell you, i I absolutely love that video, and, and if you've been around Mosaic for uh, any uh, amount of time in the recent days, you may even be sitting there going, kind of going, that, that video seems awfully familiar right now. I feel like we just recently saw that, in which case you would be absolutely correct. We just recently saw that because I used that just recently, and so your next question might be, uh, have you guys run out of video ideas? I mean, is this all you have in the arsenal? Uh, to which my answer to you would be, absolutely not. We have lots of video ideas, but we came back to this one intentionally. Because this video is just so good to sit under again because it reminds us of who we are in Christ. It shapes us once again, reminding us of our identity in Christ because of Christ, by Christ. And so that is so stirring and moving in us. In fact, I gotta tell you, I feel like I should just watch that video every single day, right when I start my day. Right before I turn and say the first words to my wife, I should just watch the video real quick. Little iPhone deal watch video quickly that's who I am in Christ got it then right as I am about to walk out of the door to go and wake up the first of my eight children in the sequence that I will I should just watch the video again and go I'm about to walk into a world of loving people that are trying to kill me and so I just need to prepare myself by watching this video and then before I wake each one of the rest of the seven kids up one at a time I should just watch the video right before I hit each kid And then as I leave and hit traffic, I should just watch the video again. And it should just sequence through my day because... Our understanding, our clarity on our identity in Christ, on Christ's work for us to produce that identity, shapes the very way we live. It has a deep, deep seated implications and impact on us. The way you and I understand the gospel, the way you and I understand Christ's work on our behalf, the way you and I understand our identity in Christ because of Christ will shape the way that we live. It will shape the way we understand our freedom. It will shape the way we understand our mission. It will shape the way we understand worship. It will shape the way that we do everything. And so this isn't just a good thing, just a a warm, fuzzy thing we get to experience. It is a necessary thing that the clarity and understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ is ever constantly before us and constantly we are digging into it. Paul is in the middle of a grand battle for the gospel. That's what he's up to. Paul had traveled into Galatia uh, along with uh, uh, Barnabas. We were in the book of Acts when this happened, uh, and he established churches in different cities in Galatia. These churches were a combination of Jewish people and Gentile people, and so naturally some questions started birthing themselves because of that collision. And so one of the questions that came about in Galatia was, uh, if you are Going to receive Jesus as Savior? In other words, if you're going to get Jesus, do you need to work through the law in order to get Jesus? In order to get Jesus, do I need to work through the law? And that question emerged, and there was a great battle about that. And the conclusion was no, you do not need to go through the law in order to get Jesus. You receive Jesus because Jesus has transcended the need for you to do it by the law. And so that conclusion was settled. You don't need to go through the law to get Jesus. Once Paul left Galatia and he traveled on with Silas, he got word that some false teachers had entered Galatia and they were teaching the people there, yes, I get that you got Jesus without coming through the law but now to keep Jesus or to maintain rightness with God, you need to go through the law. You kind of get him free of the law but now to keep him or maintain rightness with him, you need the law. So come and live again under the law and then you will stay right with God. So Paul writes a letter to the church in Galatia that we know as the letter of Galatians, and he is battling for the gospel in this letter, trying to lay out in sequence very carefully that we must understand that we do not get Christ, by works of the law, we do not keep Christ by works of the law, we do not maintain rightness with Christ by works of the law. All those are works done by Christ on our behalf for us for his glory. And so this is what Paul is pressing into. He's pressing into this question, do I need to live by works of the law to gain Christ, to keep Christ to maintain rightness with Christ. And Paul is going to argue now this point with us. So grab your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians so that we might continue our journey through this letter as we discover what it is Paul is unpacking through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit toward us. We're going to turn to the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21. If you're using one of the Bibles we provide, it is on page 632. Page 632 in the Bibles we provide. If you brought your own Bible, the likelihood that it's on page 632 is very slim. So do not get confused when you go to that page. It's not one of our Bibles, okay? So just go to Galatians, chapter 4, verse 21. Now, just before we read verse 21, remember, Paul has just written a paragraph in this letter where he has said to the church in Galatia, I am deeply concerned for you. I am perplexed by what's going on there for you. I am, I am very, very upset about this. And I, I really, I'm, my heart is breaking for you. Paul has done this because he's constantly trying to remind them, this issue we're battling about, the conclusions on this issue shape so much about our lives that if we get this wrong, we get, we get everything wrong. And so he is, he's kind of reminding them the urgency by which I am speaking. The, the places I'm daring to go to offend are necessary because you've got to get this right. You've got to get the gospel right. And so he's just kind of laid out his heart for them. And now he's going to step back into a bit of a firm uh, uh, unpacking of an argument for them here that's going to uh, kind of push the lines a bit for the, the Jewish context of the people. Take a look what he does. Verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Now, when you first read that sentence, if you're paying attention, it, it should cause you to feel a little odd, because listen to what he just said. He just said to those of you that want to live by the law, under the law, have you not listened to the law? That seems like an odd argument, doesn't it? I'm going to take the thing you don't want it, that I don't want you to live under, and I'm going to now use it to tell you that you shouldn't live under it. That seems kind of odd to me, but the reason it seems odd is because we don't understand that when the Jewish people in their context was using the word law, they could have used it for two different things, and Paul is using it for both those things right now. When Paul would be speaking about the law, depending on the context, he might be speaking uh, into either one of these two realities. The law, when you say the law, it could represent The actual commands given to Moses on Mount Sinai, including the Ten Commandments. Okay, so it could actually be, I'm talking now about the commands by which you live. They're found in the first five books of the scriptures, but they are this little piece of those five books. They are the actual commands given. That's the law. But the law is also a word used to refer to the five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, because they are the books of the law, and they include the commands, but they're more than the commands, they're also the story of God. So it's the story of God and humanity with the commands in it. And so what Paul's saying is, for those of you that want to live under the commands of God again, so that you can be right with God, have you not listened to the story of God? You see what Paul's saying? He's using it separately there. If you want to live under these, have you not listened to this one? This is the deal. And so now, what Paul's going to do is he's going to take them into a story that exists in those first five books of the Bible to utilize the story to demonstrate that God has always been pointing toward this reality that the gospel is, in fact, a a space that frees us from having to live by the law to remain right with Christ. Take a look what he does here. He says in verse 22, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, "...one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave woman was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise." So Paul immediately transports us or transports the Galatians rather into history and he says we're going to step into a story you know very well and I'm going to show you what God was trying to tell you through the story. This might surprise you but what God was trying to tell you through the story isn't what you might think he was trying to tell you through the story. That's what Paul's about to do. So why this story? Why is Paul taking us back to the story? This story, man, this is hallowed ground for the Jewish people of Paul's time. This is sacred territory. You don't step into this story without being careful what you're about to say next, okay? Because this story, the story of Abraham and Sarah and the two sons that were born to Abraham, one from Sarah and one from Hagar, this story is the beginning of the Jewish story. It is where they were born as a nation. It is where they track back to to say, if you want to know why we are separated out from the world as a promised people, as a holy people, as a holy nation, I'll take you back to the story of Abraham. Their identity as a people group was found in the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Hagar and Ishmael. Okay, This story is their video that we just watched. This is their video. This is the one where they clap afterwards and go, that's what I'm talking about. That's who I am. That's right. And Paul just went to their video. So we ought to probably go to their video and read it and see why this story is their video. Okay, So turn with me back to the story of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Hagar, and Ishmael. It's in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, which is on page seven, if you're using one of the Bibles we're we're providing, which should tell you how early on we are in the story, okay? We've read seven pages so far, that's all we got. And we're at this point in the story, there is no Moses, there is no commands from Mount Sinai, there is no story of the Old Testament yet. There is very little at this point in terms of the Jewish story. There is only the human story so far. And so we've got Abraham, we've got Sarah, they're married. God interacted with Abraham at this point And had said to Abraham, I am going to do something in you, through you, and for you that's going to be pretty awesome. I am going to produce through you a a promise, a covenant, that is ultimately going to result in uh, uh, so many people coming from your line that you can't count them. Nations are going to come from your line. Uh, Hold on, I'm not done yet. In fact, through your line, I'm going to bless all nations through your line. This is the deal. So now after this has unfolded, time goes and time goes and time goes. And Sarah, his wife, uh, she finds out by uh, the reality of trying multiple things over time that she is barren. She cannot bear children. Abraham is getting older and older, which means he's moving faster and faster toward adding to that problem, right? And so between Abraham and Sarah, they realize this isn't going well for us in terms of producing a son that will produce all these awesome promises of God. And God can't produce these promises if we have no son and so what Sarah concludes and Abraham along with her is that maybe God made the promise and now we got to do the work so that he can fulfill the promise you see and 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 don't look at Sarah and go what is she crazy this is what we do this is what we do as human beings God makes awesome promises then I got to do my part fulfill the part and then he fulfills his promises through the works I do right? We, we all think this way on some level. Then so Sarah's starting to get logical about it and going, I mean, I see no child. I see no possibility for a child. This is becoming less and less possible. Let's, let's come up with a plan. And here's Sarah's awesome plan. Uh, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children she had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarah said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to, her, uh, to the voice of Sarah. Now, here's what Sarah is saying. And, and, and let, me just, uh, let me just stop here for a second and, and kind of set the tone for you because we're about to get into some territory that's going to confuse a bit, okay? I want you, before we go on from here, to kind of take your sense of justice and I just want you to set it aside for just a little bit, for, for this period. Not because I don't want you to be just, but because we're in territory now that we're going to get into all sorts of injustices. There's slavery in the story. There's multiple wives in the story. There's all sorts of treating people badly who shouldn't be treated badly in the story. There's human beings belonging to other human beings, which is completely inappropriate. I mean, all this stuff, right, is in the story. And so we're going to start getting all caught up in that and go, I can't believe Sarah did that to Hagar, and I can't believe Ishmael was this, and I can't believe that. But here's the this is a context we can't yet project those things onto because remember uh, si- Mount Sinai has not happened. The law has not come. God has not interacted with humanity teaching us how insane our lives are. We have we have no context yet for what is right and wrong and what's supposed to happen other than a few relational connections with God. So Abraham and Sarah are living in a cultural context uh, in their normal cultural stuff and in this culture this stuff was completely normalized. Not okay. I'm not saying it's okay. I'm just saying it. Was normalized and so you can't hold these guys to the injustices yet because right now it's just normal relational dynamics it's the stuff that seems really normal to them that seems really odd to us but we just got to ignore it for the sake of the story for now here's why because the the points that Paul is going to make inspired by the Spirit is not about the injustices in the story. It is about the relational dynamics in the story because these relational dynamics are going to demonstrate things about the gospel that God was intending to use. God always uses our insanity and our mess to write his redemptive story for much bigger purposes, and we're going to see that happen in this. So so you, you got all that? Okay, now that we got a context, let's actually jump in. So here's what's happening. Sarah has a slave, this woman Hagar, and the slave belongs to Sarah. That's how it works the slave was property the the slave belonged to Sarah so naturally Sarah concluded the following if my slave has a child who does the child belong to? not to the slave but to the master of the slave so if she bears a child for my husband the child actually belongs to me just as Sarah just as Hagar belongs to me because a slave woman can't birth a free child Because by definition, anything the slave woman has or bears belongs to the master. And so the slave woman, if she bears a child for my husband, the child will be mine to do with as I see fit, and I will give the child to my husband, and that way I will be presenting a child to my husband, and we will have our child of promise, and God can then do what God's promised to do because we'll have a son. That was Sarah's conclusion. And it made some kind of insane logical sense, right? And, of course, Abraham, you could tell how adamantly against the story he was, right? want you to go lie with my servant, woman, and bear a child. Uh, Okay. So here's the deal. Just a side note, men. It's a really good idea to listen to your wives. It it really is. But, but, if you're listening to your wives and they are talking insanity, would you stand up and do something about it? You don't walk into their crazy ideas because their crazy ideas sound good to you. You look at them and evaluate. It's the same other way around. We need to watch each other. Abraham did a poor job leading here. That's just a side note. I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm just saying. But it's going to come back and bite him in just a second. Watch this. It's going to be awesome. All right. So, So you get the idea here. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant. And you see how the story's constantly her servant, the one who belongs to her. It's trying to set the pace. She's the slave. Sarah's the free woman. Okay, take a look. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. So Hagar becomes pregnant with a son now something happens. Despite the fact that Hagar belongs to Sarah, despite the fact that this child who will be born of Hagar belongs to Sarah, despite the fact that this child who belongs to Sarah will be given to Abraham, Hagar figures out that despite all of that, here's the real truth. Hagar's a woman, she's pregnant with a child that belongs to Abraham, and it's not Sarah's child, right? Right? So then no matter how you write all the slavery stuff, the real truth is this child belongs to Abraham. I'm the woman bearing it for him, so my child is going to be loved, and I'm going to be loved. And you couldn't do it, woman. You can see it right here. Look what it says. And when she saw that she had conceived, this is Hagar, she looked with contempt on her mistress. Contempt is to look at someone and bring them down, right, to, to raise yourself up. And, and rightly so, Hagar went, I got the kid, you don't. This is not going to go well for you, Sarah. So Sarah goes to her husband. She recognizes this. The story's not playing out the way she thought it would, where Hagar willingly just says, my child is your child to give. No, it's like, I got a kid and you don't. So here's how it plays now. And Sarah said to Abraham, I love this line. Men, pay attention. May the wrong done to me be on you. (laughs) You guys meditate on that for a while. That's another sermon I'm just saying. When we don't lead well, here's where it goes, okay? And rightly so. I say uh, Abraham had that coming. I'm just saying. Okay, here it goes. So, So this is now Sarah's complaint, right? I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. Sarah's mad at Abraham. Because Sarah's mad at him, rightly, because now Hagar thinks Abraham loves her and the child more than he loves Sarah. And she sees it. So she's going to Abraham and she's complaining to him. And saying, you did this to me. You showed her love. You weren't supposed to love her. You were just supposed to get the job done and then have the child. And now she thinks you love her and you love her more than me. And then the child's going to be born. And I know how this goes. I mean, you know how this went down in the room. And here's Abraham's answer to his wife. Now, this answer, again, ignore justice for a second. I'm not saying it's the right answer. But in this context, see the, see the dynamic here. This is very important, okay? Look, but Abraham said to Sarah, behold, Sarah. Hold, like, well, hold, hold. Listen, what is, what is the problem here? Here's the deal. Your servant is in your power Do to her as you Please. Then Sarah dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. See, here's what Abraham's saying. I mean, I'm hearing you, wife, but I still don't understand. That's what us men usually do. Like, I don't get it. I don't get what you're saying. The servant belongs to you. If you think she matters more to me than you do, if you think she's treating you with contempt, well, she's yours. She belongs to you. It doesn't matter if you think she's yours. Treat her as you wish because she's nothing but a slave. See that? She's nothing but a slave. She belongs to you. You have power over her. So this is not equals. This is a free woman dealing with a slave woman. If the slave woman isn't dealing appropriately, then deal with her appropriately. This is is a demonstration, again, of the absolute reality of one being free and one being enslaved. And the slave woman birthing a slave child and the free woman birthing a free child and the slave woman always being under the free woman. You see what this is painting for us? Now, should Sarah have dealt harshly with her? Absolutely not. But the fact of the matter is, in this context, she had the uh, power to do it. And so this is what happened. Now the story goes on. Uh, chapter 17, verse one. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appointed to Abraham, uh, appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you, uh, you uh, me and you and may multiply you greatly." Now, this seems like an odd moment, but in the story of Abram, it's a huge deal. He was in his mid-80s when the whole Hagar incident took place. Now he's 99. So this isn't days later. This is years later. Time has passed, and by this time, I would guess that they've concluded that Sarah's plan was a good plan, right? God never showed up and, 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 and helped Sarah have a child, and so now they have the son, and, and Hagar's been around for a while, and he's growing up among them, and Sarah and Hagar have figured their stuff out to a certain extent, and that's kind of traveling okay. And so God God comes to Abraham and and you would think God's meeting with Abraham to say, how's it going with my promise? How's it going with the child I gave you, uh, Ishmael? But that's not what God does here. God comes as though that had no bearing on his promise and comes to him and says, now let's let's gather up our time together and and serve me so that I can fulfill my promise to you and, and make great nation out of you. It's like him saying, I'm sorry, my promise hasn't happened yet. I don't know what you all did on the planet Earth, but my promise hasn't come yet. I've been waiting for my promise to come at the right time so that it would be absolutely my promise and not some crazy work of yours. See, there was a chance before that if God conceived in Sarah that Abraham and Sarah might have thought they just got lucky and, and, and she conceived. But at this point, it's over. He's 99. She's barren. I mean, at this point, it ain't going to happen. It's totally impossible. They have settled into the old promise of Ishmael and gone, well, this will do. This will do. And God comes to Abraham and says, I haven't even started with my promise yet. So now get with me and let me tell you what I'm going to do. And then he promises that he is going to produce a child in Sarah. What? Now take a look at this. Chapter 21, verse 1. This is where it is fulfilled. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Oh, turns out God was in control the whole time knowing what he was up to. Now look. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him whom Sarah bore him. Isaac. Now, look what happens in verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw that the son of Hagar the Egyptian, um, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, "'Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac.'" That's a fascinating statement. So what happens is at the time that Isaac is presented weaned, the older son, Ishmael, is laughing at Isaac. Because though Isaac is now the favored son because of Sarah, Ishmael knows something. He's the oldest son, so he is heir to the realities of the father. And so he is, it is intended here that we, that we see that the slave woman had contempt for the free woman, and then the slave child had contempt for the free child. This is the relational dynamic, not the justice dynamic, the relational dynamic that's playing in the story. And so Sarah's response is, I see what's happening here. This woman and her child must be sent away because he cannot share in the inheritance of the free child because he is a slave child. And he may think he's going to share in the inheritance because he's done his part, but he can't. So Abraham is really distressed about this and doesn't want to send them away. But God actually comes to Abraham and says, In this case, Abraham, I want you to listen to your wife and send these away. Trust me with them. I will take care of Hagar and I will take care of Ishmael. In fact, I will, I will grow a great nation out of Ishmael because he is your offspring they're going to be fine i've got them covered but you need to send them away because yes in this case there is rightness in this story that Ish- ishmael cannot be part of the inheritance of isaac why not because it's fair no 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 this is about the gospel that's going to emerge and it's actually going to happen right here in what paul's about to do next now i want you to understand something you get the dynamic between ishmael and isaac right you get that the isaac became the line of promise the people of Israel, because it was through Isaac that he had two sons and through those sons that then the 12 tribes are born out of those 12 tribes. Israel is born and out of Israel, the chosen people of God, the children of promise come. And so every time the Jewish nation got to stand in their identity as chosen people of God, it went back to this story. See, we are of the bloodline of Isaac, the child of promise, born to the free woman, And the rest of planet earth are children in bloodline. Not exactly, but they're not bloodline of Isaac. So by definition, they are born of the slave woman... They are born by flesh, meaning this. It wasn't God's promise that birthed Ishmael. It was Sarah's decision along with Abraham. So it was a decision of human making rather than a miracle of God's promising. Do you see the difference? And so one is born of the flesh, human decision, and one is born of the promise, God miracle. And so the people of Israel would have said this plain and clear. We are of God miracle. We are of promise. We are of that line and the rest of humanity, they belong to the line of Ishmael and Hagar. They are slaves and that is who we are. And what God did to prove that is that all along he's been preserving us, including bringing us Moses to set us free from Egypt, to give us the law so that we could live for God. All makes sense, doesn't it? Let's see how Paul plays this out. He's about to take their video and turn it upside down and inside out. Take a look. This is what he does. Uh, Galatians, I should go there. There we go. Okay, Galatians chapter four. We're back there, page 632. Galatians chapter four. We're now jumping into verse 24. He's just said in verse 23, uh, you know, born to a slave woman, born to a free woman, uh, through flesh, through promise. Now in verse 24, he says this. Now this may be interpreted allegorically That's Paul writing. So the Spirit of God says to Paul, this story not only has immediate implication in reality, flesh and blood, but it was also a story I wrote for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I am a husband. That means that I actually have a wife and we actually hang out and stuff happens because of that. But being a husband is also an allegory for the gospel. I am the groom, she is the bride, Christ is the groom, we are the bride, and that dynamic plays out. I am a father. Yes, that's an everyday real deal. I mean, my kids are around. They try to kill me constantly. So I know, they're right there, right? I love them, I love them. But you know, um, here's the deal. Also, beyond just the reality of being a father... It is also an allegory of the gospel. God is father, I am child. See, God has always painted in our reality stories allegories of his grand story with us. And so what Paul is saying here is this story, though it was a real story, was also intended for an allegory about this very moment about the gospel. So let's look at the allegory. Now he says this. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai. Okay, so now watch. This is cool. He's going to take the two women, and he's going to say, These two women, Sarah the free woman, Hagar the slave, are, are, are a representation of the two covenants of God, or of two covenants of God. One of the women is the covenant of Mount Sinai. Now, if you haven't read on, which woman are you thinking we're going with? See, I'm thinking Sarah right? Because we're going to go Mount Sinai, the law given, the people of Israel. And so immediately you're going, one of them is a woman representing the covenant of God at Mount Sinai and Moses and that whole deal and the the ongoing reality of the Jewish people. So I'm already there. I'm I'm Sarah. I got you, Paul. I'm tracking with you. Don't even have to say it, brother. I mean, I'm right there. Look at this. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children of freedom. That's what you would think, wouldn't it? But it says this, in in fact. It says, bearing children of for slavery, this is Hagar. This is shocking. You've just taken Mount Sinai and the Mosaic law and covenant and, and everything that is at the heart of being the Jewish people and you've just said that stuff, if you're going to compare it, is actually being compared to Hagar, the slave woman birthing slaves. And look what he says. He goes on. He presses in. Look at this. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Whoa! He's just said that Hagar represents not only what happened at Mount Sinai in the law coming to mankind, but is what is happening in Jerusalem present day for Paul and the people that are living under this law. He just said the people in Jerusalem living under the law are children of Ishmael, uh, born from Hagar, under the law that is slavery, because the law itself was enslaved. What? At this point, you're starting to step back and go, whoa, what are you getting at here, man? Now watch. Why is Paul saying that the law was, or Hagar in this case, was also enslaved along with her children, why would he say that the law was enslaved? Because the law is good, the law is from God. The law is not bad or evil, the law is good. But here's the deal, Paul later on describes this when he's writing to the church in Rome. And in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter eight, he describes to us the, the powerless nature of the law in view of its peace it was supposed to play in our lives, if it even could. Take a look, Romans chapter eight, verse one, just listen in if you want. It says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now listen to this verse. Here it is. For God has done what the law, that's the commandments of God given at Mount Sinai, weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. See, what he's saying is this. The law was good, but it was enslaved by our sinful nature. The law was weakened by our sinful nature, so what it was Uh, sent to do, not that God sent the law to save us, but what we thought it was sent to do, which was to rescue us, we find out later it was not sent to do. It is works of man trying to determine their righteousness for God so we can be right with God. And what the law pointed out to us is that what we thought was the promise of God to save us turned actually out to be a picture of our inability to ever fulfill the promises of God to us. You can't make God's promises work. Only he can do that. And so the law became what Hagar was. It became that story. It came first before Christ. It came as a sign that we thought was the promise of God fulfilled, but it turned out it was not the promise of God. It was just work of man, or rather to demonstrate work of man, is not capable of making promise of God. And so he's saying, if you live under the law, even today in Jerusalem, You are of the story of the slave woman with the slave child. And you are part of that story. Now look, he's not quite done. He says this. But the Jerusalem above is free. And she is our mother. Sort of odd language, but remember he's tying it to the allegory of the story. Who is our mother if we are part of the new Jerusalem above, part of eternity, part of Christ? Who is our mother? Our mother is the free woman, the story of Sarah, the line of Isaac. Why? Because it was the line of Isaac that produced not the law, although the law came through that generation, but produced the promise of Christ. When God made the promise that through Abraham and Isaac all nations will be blessed, He wasn't talking about the law. He was talking about the promise of Christ. And so it is through Isaac that Christ came. And so what we're seeing is if we are in Christ, then we are of the story of Isaac, of the line of Isaac. Now look, he goes on. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Isaiah 54.1 Why is Paul quoting this here? It's a prophecy describing the story of Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the promise of God in Sarah and Abraham's mind when he was born, right? That made him awesome. It made Hagar a part of the story, and they were excited until what happened? Until the real promise was born, and then the real promise was better than the seeming promise, wasn't it? Because the promise that you created, or was created by works of man, is only so good until the miracle of God shows up. And then you go, oh, that's so much better. See, yes, Sarah barren is worse than Hagar Pregnant. But Sarah pregnant with a miracle child is better than Hagar pregnant through natural means. And this is what this is saying. When the miracle actually arrives, when the promise arrives, it always creates this, this reality that what you thought was the promise pales in comparison. So do not, do not weep, a woman who cannot bear children, he says. When God's promise comes, then the miracle is better than the natural course of things. Now look, here it is. Here it comes. Big one. Verse 28. Now you, who's he talking to? The Christians in Galatia. Jews and Gentiles both. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. Man, Paul just did it. He just did the unthinkable. In the Jewish context, he just took a group of Jews that have abandoned, in many ways, the reality of the Jewish structure, and Gentiles, the unclean, He's put them in a pile together, so the traitors and the unclean, and this is what he said to them. You are the promised children of of, uh, Isaac. Isaac is your forefather. Your story is born from Isaac. I mean, the other guys that are out there, they're going, I got the blood to prove it. These Gentile crazies are not going to take Isaac from me. Paul's going, I'm I'm not not with you yet. I'm just here. These guys are the, the children of promise all that pride and joy and wonder that comes from the fact that you belong to God, it's it's yours. You're the children of promise. And now he's going to do the final piece. Take a look. But just as at that time, that's Sarah's time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so also it is now. Oh my goodness. See, here's what Paul just did. He didn't say, you uh, Gentiles and traitor Jews are now children of the promise too, along with the other Jewish people. Here's what he said. You are children of the promise because you're in Christ and those persecuting you that are part of the uh, living under the law, uh, it's just like it was in the day of Sarah. They are children of? Hagar. He just did it. He just did it. See, here's what Paul's saying. Folks, pay close attention. Paul's saying this. When you understand the gospel, here's what you realize about the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he came to rescue our souls, redeem our futures, restore our purpose. If you are a Gentile living a lawless life, clearly lawless, you need Jesus to belong to God because your lawless life ain't doing it. You are not going to belong to God, living a crazy lawless life. You need Jesus. And so you kind of get to go, man, that's awesome. It isn't my behavior or life that is making me right with God. It is his grace and mercy. That's the gospel. But look what he's saying. If you are Jewish in this particular context, or in any way uh, self-righteously legalistic, in other words, if you're living a seemingly lawful life, behaving all just so right, that do not make you right with God. You still need Jesus, just like this guy. See, the lawless guy needs Jesus, and the lawful guy needs Jesus, because our human lawfulness is as empty as our human lawlessness. And so he said, the children of Hagar, the children of uh, Ishmael, are the children of humanity. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. In fact, this also in Romans, he will declare. Listen to this. Romans chapter 3, this is what he says. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest or shown apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets certainly bore witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are made right or justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What Paul's trying to show us, trying to show the Galatians, is that this gospel is a gift to us, a promise to us fulfilled by God, not by us. It is not our works that determine our righteousness. It is God's work for us that determines our righteousness. It is not Sarah's idea to birth Ishmael from Hagar that produced the promise of God. It is God's miraculous conception of Isaac in Sarah's womb that produced the promise of God. And what Paul is trying to do here is to say this. The gospel is a work of Christ a work of God on your behalf for you. While you were still children of wrath, chasing after the insanities of your minds and hearts and flesh, while you were enemies of God, wicked, while you hated the light, he, because of his great love, made you and I alive in Christ. This is not a work of your own. Not at all. And so what he's saying to us is that it doesn't matter who you are. If you think... That the way you behave, the way you live, the scale, if you can get the scale past the 50% mark or the 90% mark or whatever mark you've hit and you can be a generally good person, that's going to somehow keep you right with God, make you right with God, maintain rightness with God. He's telling the most righteous people that ever lived on planet Earth, and not even you can cut it, because not how it works. The gospel is this gift given to us of promise that is miraculous. And when you come to know Christ as Savior, that is a miracle of God, not a human work. You didn't one day wake up and like, oh, have a moment where you figured it all out and then you said, fine, God, I'm ready now to take you. You've proven yourself enough to me that I'm willing to believe. No, the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 12, Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Mm, Yep, even the faith you brought to Jesus to say, I believe Turns out he authored it. Yeah. And this is what Paul's trying to do. He's trying to say this is the deal. So what is he, what is he trying to affect? You see, what you're going to find is this, that Paul is not trying to lead us into uh, lawlessness, into ignoring the law and righteousness and love. He's not saying, look, guys, stop living lawfully. It's a detriment to you. That's not what Paul's saying at all. In fact, you'll see in Galatians, Paul is gonna lead us into a greater bondage into righteousness than we've ever had with the law, a bondage that is freedom. He's gonna say, live by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit, and live in the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is much bigger than the law. It's the law and some. But he's not gonna bring us there until he can get this right with us first. Here it is, you ready? He wants us to recognize that we can never, ever measure our righteousness by our behavior. We must always measure our righteousness by God's work. Never measure your righteousness by your work. Measure your righteousness by God's work. That's what we have to do. We have to start there. Every time you think you're pretty good, every time you think you had a great day, every time you think you did it well today, don't go, I'm now a better person. I'm more righteous. God likes me more. God must be happier with me. God's more pleased with me because that is not true. God delights in you completely and totally, loves you with an everlasting love, is writing your story for you and will finish the work he began in you despite whatever day you're having today. And that is because his love for you is great and his mercy for you is awesome. Now, once we recognize that our rightness with God is a great work of mercy from Christ. What is our response to that? Think about Isaac for a second, because we're children of Isaac, right? Think about this. What if every day you came in the kitchen with mom, she's cooking away, doing something, and you walk in and you are like, hey mom, and mom goes, you know, you shouldn't be here. I'm sorry, no, she goes, not in the kitchen. You're gonna stay in the kitchen. I'm just saying you shouldn't even be born. You shouldn't exist. You are an impossible child. Well, what, do you, what do you mean? Sit down for a second. Let me tell you a story. You see, when you were born, mom was old and barren. I couldn't, I, I couldn't have babies inside of me. It wasn't possible. I knew that because we'd tried long, long time. And dad was older and he couldn't make babies. It couldn't happen. That, that was not possible. But God promised that he would give us a son. And the son that would bless all nations, through whom would, all nations would be blessed rather. And he gave us you. You are born a miracle. You are born impossible. You are born as promise. You are born free. And this was a work of God for you and for us. When you walk out of that kitchen, how are you feeling? I'll tell you how you should feel. You should walk out of that kitchen just blown away, in awe of what God has done. Looking at yourself and going, me? Really, me? Me? Me, ordinary little Isaac, I am a child of promise, a a child of miracle, a child with a future and a hope, a plan, a child that you are going to bless the nations through. Yes, sir, that's who you are. That's who you are. What is your response? Is your response, well, sweet. Well, treat me like a stinking king. You know who I am? I'm a child of promise, baby. I deserve to be treated like a child of promise. That's not what the scripture says. The scripture says this therefore, dear brothers, in view of God's mercy to you, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, for this is your spiritual act of worship. Our worship is to come to God in view of what He's done for us by His work and to respond with great acts of love and great acts of righteousness. I live righteously by the wondrous beautiful commands of God with deep and passionate radical acts of love not because I am in some way trying to attain righteousness but because he has already made righteousness a possibility for me. And so in response to his work in me I respond unapologetically with a life of radical love and righteousness. My righteousness is my worship. My righteousness is my gratitude. Never measure your righteousness by your works. Measure your gratitude by your works. If your works are all crazy, treating everybody all bad, thinking of yourself ahead of others, talking to your spouse like, you know, you are the king of the world and he or she needs to get it, dealing with your kids like they're the biggest irritation on planet earth and they're affecting inconvenience for you. You know, all the stuff we do, when you're doing all that stuff, guarantee you, it's not a matter of your righteousness diminishing, it's a matter of your gratitude diminishing you have forgotten who you are, you've forgotten what Christ has done for you, and you are thinking all about yourself again. I do it, you do it, I get it. Thank God for his mercy that our righteousness is not diminished in those moments. But may they drive us to go, whoa, why am I so ungrateful? How have I forgotten what Christ has done for me? Not a shameful reality, a convicting, challenging reality. God, sorry, let me watch that video again. That's right, that's who I am. Wow, that's what you've done. Wow. What can I do for you? And finally, at the very end, at the very end of this little passage, you know what Paul says? You can go read it. It's in the book of Galatians chapter four. He says, listen, just as it was in Sarah's time, when Hagar and Ishmael were gonna take the inheritance from Sarah and Isaac, God had them sent off. So too in our time, when people come to you and start teaching you, that you ought to live a certain way to measure your righteousness, what do you do with them? You send them away. You ignore them. Don't let them teach you. See, he's back to the false teachers again. Don't listen to the guys. Don't listen to the woman that are trying to tell you, if you do X, Y, and Z, then God will do X, Y, and Z. No, no, because that diminishes his mercy. It increases your work and stature, which... As you look at the free woman in contempt and you start looking at the gospel of Jesus with contempt, Jesus is cool and all, but I did my part. Ooh, no, no. Jesus is everything and you and I did nothing. And despite that, he rescued us. So now let's give him everything. Let's pray. God, thanks for this incredible story that you are unfolding and wrapping through time and space, that you allowed the circumstances to unfold as they did in Abraham's time, and yet all that time you were preparing for Paul to write this allegory, to demonstrate this wonder, to remind us that the great promise that you promised us, that you would come, that you would rescue our souls, redeem our future, restore our purpose, can never, was never meant to be a work of man, It is not God that you have promised we do our part and now you fulfill. That this was always meant to be a promise of miracle. Exclusive of any human part in it. That you came Christ. You lived, you died, you rose from the dead. You author faith in us. You draw us to yourself. You allow us to know you. You drag us from the darkness into light. And now you are the one that said to us through Peter, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And for what? So that we can be treated like kings, queens? No, because we are designed to make the excellencies of you who have rescued us known by our radical love, our radical sacrifice, our radical worship, where we lay ourselves down for the sake of others. And in that, we do it because you have rescued us from the dominion of darkness and called us into your marvelous light. May we become great ambassadors for you, willing to lay any convenience, any comfort, any resource down, using every relationship and every circumstance to honor you, to glorify you, to act with radical love and radical righteousness, not because we're trying to be righteous, because by God's grace, you've already made us so, but because we are grateful for what you've already done. Make these things true in us so that we might live for you and only for you in everything we do. We love you, Jesus. Amen.